0: Hi, listeners, we want to tell you about some upcoming live events where you can join Kate and I. We're excited to announce that our upcoming Tend Her 3.0 program is happening. This is our third year in a row where we've received a grant that allows us to offer this program for free for up to 1,000 women. Our theme this year is resilience. We've realized these fast-moving times that are filled with lots of complexity require resilience. So in this four-week online program, we're gonna be learning the science of resiliency as well as all the tools that we need to strengthen our resiliency muscle. Registration for this opens October 4, and the program starts
1: October 23. In addition, we are so excited to announce that this year we're adding to the Tender Program an in-person Women's Resiliency Summit on Friday, November 17th from nine to 4 p.m. It's going to be held at Little Lights on the Lane. Registration for this event will open October 23rd, the first day of the Tend Her 3.0 program. If you want to be first to know, follow us on Instagram at Kate Moreland Coaching, at Dr. Yoga Mama, and at Tend Her Wild. Last but certainly not least, consider
0: joining Kate and I for a full live and in-person week of rewilding in the wilds of Costa Rica on yoga and meditation retreat, May 11th to the 18th, this coming 2024 space is limited, but for more information on this event and how to register, go to ww.1yogaglobal.com. That's O-N-E YogaGlobal.com.
1: Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her
0: Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice,
1: rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode.
0: Tent Her Wild podcast listeners. We have a beautiful guest with us today and we feel like her study and her work aligns so perfectly with this podcast. So we're thrilled to have her here today. Dr. Stacey Shelby is an author, speaker, educator, and depth psychotherapist. She's a registered clinical counselor in Canada, a certified clinical dream tender, I love that. (laughs) And she's studied in plant medicine and yoga traditions. She's adjunct faculty at the Pacific Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, California. She has her own thriving therapy practice over Zoom. We love Zoom therapy. It's kind of expanded our world. And she works with adults in various stages of personal transformation. She's definitely gifted at working with the symbolic language of the soul. She's the author of two depth psychology books. This first one called Tracking the Wild Woman Archetype.
1: Right up our alley.
0: Right up our alley. <laughs> and the second one, Love and Soulmaking, Searching the Depths of Romantic Love. Dr. Stacy lives in LA with her son and her dog. So welcome.
2: welcome.
0: So Thank glad to both. have you here.
2: Yes, wonderful to meet you both and wonderful to be here. Thank you.
1: You're so welcome. Yeah. Well, we always like to start our interviews with this one question because we've learned that when we start here, we learn so much initially about our guests and, and the thread of how you got to where you are. So the question is, can you tell us about your first 10 years, um, your growing up, your any experiences you had early on that really shaped you, that stand out for you? that might give us a a perspective on your your upbringing and maybe your early wild years as a young girl?
2: Yeah, that's such an interesting place to start. Um, Well, the first 10 years, I grew up in Canada. My family uh, was um, poor, like definitely not wealthy. They were poor. And um, we traveled around a lot the first 10 years for my dad's work. Um, and then we eventually settled by the time I was 10 in a place called Kelowna, which is like a mid-sized, pretty conservative town. Um now I don't know how much of that would have shaped like the the seeds or the thread, the red thread as we often call it. I don't know how much of that would have been in those years. From a depth psychological perspective, we don't necessarily look at early childhood development as being, let's say, the most formative, because we hold a demonic perspective that maybe there's a greater calling that um, perhaps influences where we were born into, maybe more so than the actual experiences. And of course, also the experiences do shape us. It's like these things coexist. So I was an only child, and that meant I spent a lot of time in, in individual play and um, imagination. Many of us depth psychotherapists uh, are introverted, intuitive types. And what that means is we uh, our strongest um, psychological function is how to navigate the interiority of the psyche so the inner life, right, where um, I think a lot of culture is extroverted, and particularly extroverted sensing and extroverted thinking, so my, because of my many, many hours um, just alone, you know, butterflies would be my friends, bees would be my friends, one of my earliest childhood memories is my friend the bee on my tricycle and I was taking it for a bike ride and then it bit me and my heart was broken that this bee that was my friend you know (laughs) so there's um, a lot of hours uh, alone and in imagination and in that animated world of um, just being with the things of the world you know small little things like Bees, butterflies, pansies. I was always enamored with pansies as well, which, and I honestly still am.
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: So these yeah. kinds of things stand out as early memories. Yeah.
1: It sounds like you were very connected to nature early on. Too.
2: Well, and, and imagination, maybe as well. Right? Yeah. 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 The connection between imagination and nature and those sort of blurry lines, the synchronicities that can happen.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious, I I don't consider myself a depth psychotherapist, but I have studied Jung as one of my favorite uh, teachers. And so I've read a lot of Jung over the years. Um, but what I'm curious about, and you do write about this in your book, that there is a wild there before young girls get to that pre-adolescent stage. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about, I mean, that in yourself and then in what you have seen as you've studied this wild woman archetype. And that's a core question. Kate and I have been kind of exploring on this podcast. Who were you before you lost that yeah. wild instinctual self? And so, yeah, what was it about like, w- do, do you see even in your own life when you lost it? Do you see um,
2: it? I think we lose it right from birth. I I, lose I it don't right think away. as women in the Western culture, we have a chance. It, it's mm-hmm. so socialized out of us right from the beginning. So I don't think there's defining moments. Um, Certainly by the time we are at the preteen girl stage, um, you know, there's just simply not enough mirroring uh, back to us about who we are, because usually our parents are still trying to figure out who they are. You know, that that inner life, it's recognized now. And usually we call it depression or anxiety. It's very symptomatic but the inner life as a as an actual real realm where we spend you know a lot of hours a day, maybe half of our day it it just isn't recognized enough. So um, when we don't get that mirroring about who we are at our essential self because we can't be seen because our parents can't see us can't see. see themselves right so then we end up carrying a lot of projection it's very common for young girls especially preteen girls to carry the anima figure of the father so the idealized soul image so then she really learns a lot about her identity and role with men through carrying the anima role
0: based on her father Uh, right based based on her father father and his health or wellness or how he moves the world is really she takes that on
2: and his relationship to his own soul,
0: mm. right? And or lack he doesn't
2: of have a soul, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Which is exactly. He doesn't percent. have a soulful relationship, which most men, you know, millennials are starting to shift it. But, you know, above that, that just wasn't um, a value, you know, and maybe it wasn't even a luxury or an option because of various cultural conditions, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. You talk, you talk in your book about wanting to know who a woman was before she was made by the culture, the, you know, our our Western culture, especially. Um, and one of the things that I think we're all trying to figure out is how do we live in this culture and not continually feel caged within it? Um, it feels like a daily Sometimes hourly, if I'm being honest, practice for me. Yeah. Um, what would you say to to our listeners about how how to go about that in a healthy way? In a healthy
2: way, <laughs> yeah. In my experience and observation. I don't honestly know that it's what we would call healthier. Certainly not easy. It it's usually some sort of crisis that precipitates it. So. We might feel incredibly um, domesticated or restricted, or soul loss, or loss of inspiration, or purpose, or meaning. You know, all of uh, anxiety, depression, all of these would be symptoms of the soul. And so, when there, when and grief too, when the symptoms are and pain, <laughs> gosh, the list goes on and yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> I just kind of can't stop with my list. All of these things would be symptoms of the soul. And so, when when symptoms are presenting, then it's like, okay what is happening at this point that I need to be more liberated from or freed. Um, And so that can show up typically in midlife as the midlife crisis or the midlife awakening, the spiritual awakening in Jungian terms, it was called the individuation process. It is called that. And midlife in, in Jung's perspective was around 35, give or take a bit. Um, That number seems to be a a lot wider now, you know, a hundred and something years after his time. Um, So, you know, I'll sometimes have clients that are after the Saturn returns, maybe like late twenties yeah, and then uh, sometimes easily well into the forties because life is, (laughs) longer (laughs) right life is longer life is busier there's more uh, responsibilities so midlife seems to sometimes be on the later side as well so when the the crisis for lack of a better word happens um, that's when we start to like really get curious about who we are what what are our values personally our ethics our priorities, our morality, and there'll be something that will be bringing those things into light and challenging them. And discovering those things is what separates us from the culture, from what's been laid over. So we might have been taught that we're cisgender, heterosexual, monogamous individuals, but then later in life discover, oh, yeah, no, absolutely none of that resonates i'm going to change all of that or some of that or we might find that actually that does resonate but maybe we've had to experiment to find that out right like there's this exploration of of who we are who we actually are the oh. question of who is a woman before she is made that actually comes from simone de beauvoir that she was writing uh, probably around Young's time, actually, also about a hundred years ago. So I've been very fascinated with that question.
0: Um, been asking old. it for, Enough. and it sounds like generationally, this is a question women have been asking mm-hmm. for literally a hundred years and probably longer, right?
2: Probably longer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably always within the systems of patriarchy, um, we've probably always been asking that. Has
0: essentially been as long as written word has been around, correct? patriarchy
2: probably before that
0: even probably even before that probably
2: 2000 years or so It's kind of
0: mind-boggling to me to consider um what the feminine what women have been sort of living under and how we're just so used to it I've had some situations lately where it's been pointed out to me the systemic patriarchal system and I'm like how come I didn't see that yeah Yet it's like we're so used to it that um we Don't even catch it sometimes,
2: yeah. They had that metaphor of, um, you can't know a fish can't know right. the ocean, right? It's so exactly that. Like, how do we know patriarchy when that's all we've ever been in? You know, yeah.
1: do you mm-hmm. feel like though that we're actually talking about it more? I mean, I
2: oh, we absolutely.
1: think about Barbie, the movie, and I, as have you example, seen it by the way.
2: Not yet. I wanted to go. I wanted to take my son, who's eighteen, and he's like, I am not sure that's gonna work out really well. And I'm like, the girls will love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna wait and see if he'll go with
0: me. We took our sons. We took
1: our sons. Yeah. Did yeah. you? They they actually, teenage boys. Both, yeah. They both liked it. I mean, you have two sons. <laughs> I have two as well, and they they did all four of them. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. But I I do feel like you'll, I hope you do see it because the conversation is, it's right there. Like I've never been to a a film that's so clever, but you can't ignore it. Right. Man or woman, you can't unsee it. And I think people leave feeling like this is a big conversation and it is real. So um, I'm excited that it feels more mainstream to actually be talking about it then.
2: And I think what is so, so critical about the whole conversation of patriarchal social systems, the language is actually very unfortunate because um, we so easily conflate patriarchy with men.
0: Men. Mm -hmm.
2: And while there are systems that favor men, it doesn't make individual men problematic. And as mothers of sons,
0: we very, all very aware
2: all three
0: of us have them. Yes. Right?
2: Yeah. So then what, what um, can create safety for the young men coming up? So they don't feel like they're vilified uh, as representatives of patriarch, right? We, we have to also support the men young and old because we certainly don't want to be vilifying anybody. You
0: yeah. Know?
2: So it's, it's the, the system. it
0: is the system. It's the
2: systems and like can't emphasize that enough because I think there's starting to be some, I don't think, I know there's starting to be some significant backlash mm-hmm. to that conflation.
1: Yeah.
2: And that's not going to move us forward.
0: But I have to admit that if I, as I've been doing my inner work and my realization of these patriarchal systems and how they've harmed me, I went through periods of anger at, at men specifically, like trucks driving by me. I didn't know the man, but I'm projecting my anger onto that man driving by in this truck and it, both Kate and I've had this conversation that we've come around to more as we've been in this and worked with this archetype and worked with understanding this so much more compassion for men. And you wrote this amazing phrase in your book. You said the men seem more lost than we are. Mm -hmm. And we, we are like, we talk about this every week. We talk about this together all the time. And men maybe aren't having these conversations or are they given the space to show emotion and be in Uh, deep places with one another. And so I would love to hear your take on that, especially as a father of an adult son.
2: Yeah, that I still think that's the place we need work. There are starting to be some um, men's groups and male role models where we can see men, uh, the emotions are the kind of key thing. They're so disconnected. They've, they've been, so just like we've been socialized to be a certain way as, um, Females within the patriarchal system, they've also been socialized to be a certain way. And very specifically, that is detached from emotion. Mm. And so, if we can't get our men connected with their minds, hearts, and sexuality, you know, their whole system, if we can't get them connected with that by, as women, supporting the men in our lives. As men supporting men and being emotionally expressive, we're not going to make advances. You know, we'll just create more divisiveness. And the wild woman is not about divisiveness;
0: it's about unity.
1: You know, Uh, talk more about that for a moment. Yeah, I want (laughs) to.
0: The wild woman is about unity.
1: Yeah, because I I sometimes feel I I, I'm curious about that too because I sometimes feel like there's this independence that I, I feel about the language around a wild woman, but it's really more interdependence. And um, like you said, cu- the coming together of the masculine and feminine and all of that, that is powerful.
2: Yeah. The independence I think is actually what probably gave rise to the wild woman. You know, if we go back to the suffragettes and the first waves of feminism Um, when women started to have some uh, financial autonomy to be able to earn income really because of the war um, that created some independence. And then that gave women choices and they could um, leave unhappy or abusive marriages and relationships. Right. And so with that independence, I think there was enough of a movement where Uh, women became very sovereign within themselves. And it it became like a hyper independence. And I certainly know I've erred on that side as well.
0: So have I? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like uh, the shadow function of our grandmas and moms that couldn't um, create that amount of independence within themselves. So it became hyper independent with a lot of women. But it's, it's not actually balanced, right? What what's actually balanced is interdependence of like family units community units uh, work units social systems that support one another which is why these wild women conversations are so great because now we're actually living it in practice how do we support not only each other but the women that it's going to trickle out to and just having that uh, energetically out there so if we If we talk about you know the alchemy the union of the masculine and feminine principles it's not the queen on the throne by herself she unifies and unites the conunctio with a masculine principle so we want a female queen to join with a male king on the human plane but that has to also happen internally
0: right and then to go back to our conversation about men And how sometimes they feel even further behind of exploring these things because of patriarchy in some ways it's harmed them as much, if not more. Like that's my initial instinct. I'm like, okay, well, where do we find the kings, right? Are they even out there? Like that divine, we've had so many conversations about that divine masculine. And Um, um, and I know it's in us, right? Like, but I want you to kind of help our listeners understand that like women doing all this internal work and wanting to find a a partner but then being disappointed that there's not a king out there
1: or that there's a there's a gap a gap yeah
0: and gosh
2: i don't know what to say about <laughs> that i wish i could say yeah they're there it the just says them. it all dr stacy <laughs> the fact is, is i think they're just they're just fewer and farther between i think they're actually farther behind we've had the women's movement which has been going really strong for a number of decades now it's, the men's movement is just nowhere near as strong so um the I think they are fewer and farther between and I think the emotional labor that women do to support partners as men is is in unequal imbalanced um and yet if we don't do it, you know, then, then what happens, right? Then I think we end up with you know, fifty-seven-year-olds dating thirty-year-olds, and does that make a lot of sense? Like, yeah. not particularly, you know.
1: Right. I was really excited to talk to you about how wild women engage in relationships, because we—that's been a, a conversation that we've had a little bit, but we haven't really delved into that part. And you write that the kind of relationship a wild woman wants is one that changes her perhaps despite the ego's resistance to that change which felt a little bit to me like we want a challenging relationship we want something that where you know it it there's a an opportunity for growth for maybe both sides um and i don't know if i'm thinking of that rightly and i just want to ask you more about that. What what does that relationship look like? So
2: I'm going to say there's two different voices in that. One is the conscious personality, the ego, the identity, and that one is saying I want something easy, low drama, low stress, supportive, you know. The soul, which is much more aligned to the wild woman. So the the soul and wild woman um, are almost interchangeable words. The wild woman would be a little bit closer to the instincts than the soul. Um, but those are in, they're both a little bit slippery to define, but they're almost interchangeable. So the soul or the wild woman wants to grow. And the nature of the story of uh, the second book, which I'll take this gratuitous moment. To You're sure. Yes. <laughs> the love and soul making is that soul will be drawn to the growth opportunity right and so that might be where we end up in triangulations or attracted to somebody that just you know doesn't make any sense or isn't available it's going to create some growth so soul will um, and you know that expression i think that's emily dickinson who says the heart wants what it wants and nothing less will do that's the soul you know so those ones um, their their growth opportunities because we're going to work through the struggles. The story of Psyche and Eros, the Greek myth, is that she goes through four impossible tasks to grow, in order to arrive at the conclusion of uh, the birth of their daughter, which is pleasure. The daughter's name is pleasure, so we have to go through the kind of trials and tribulations that love brings us um, in order to to go through that growth psyche which means soul falls in love with eros who's the god of love so love and soul are inseparable Mm. so there's there's that kind of relationship at a soul level and then there's also um, the human relationship and that's where i might define that more like Ego, identity, conscious personality, and by ego, I don't mean like the kind of lustful desires, but more like just who we are within our own consciousness, what we hold that we know about ourselves consciously, and that that more human relationship. You know, maybe we do want something simpler, less complex, um, that is just more companionship relationship. Um, And so if we can get the kind of consciousness relating to the unconscious of soul, if we can get those two working together, we can co-create something that might be a happy medium, right?
0: So it's again, coming back to the tension of opposites that Mm -hmm. the paradox here is yeah. that if we just want easy, romantic love that just flows and it's simplistic, that that's not possible necessarily. It could be possible, but the the balance is that there's also going to be, your soul is actually requiring you to go into the depths and to work and to face hard stuff. And so to have a soulful relationship, it's like there's both and. It's like yeah. a balance between these yeah. two different states. Yeah. Yeah
2: and i do believe um although in fairness it's not my experience yet but because i'm a therapist and i get to work so intimately with people um i do see uh couples that are in their 40s and 50s can't say 60s but i don't doesn't mean it doesn't exist um where they are coming together and having beautiful human connection with um passion and desire and all of the support and they're growing together right so they do exist Um, sometimes the women will lament that they feel like they're doing a lot of emotional labor but definitely not always you know so back to the the seeming dearth of men they are out there and the connections do happen you know
1: do you feel like they're I sometimes think that stepping into yourself and your your wild woman archetype, you know, doing your inner work, that that is what can help men in our relationships kind of want to do the work for their own inner work for the relationship as well. Like, I feel like we're leading in that. Yeah. What I hear you saying is we need to also bring our partners along and be supportive because it's that, you know, interrelational journey that we, you know, unless it's an unhealthy and, you know, relationship or something that's not safe, it's worth exploring together if both sides are kind of up for that challenge because there's so much power in unifying those two things like the, the ego side, but the soul side. The thing that seems to work, which
2: typically by, you know, 40s and 50s, both parties have developed is respectful communications. And I mean, it's, it sounds so simple, and yet it's really hard, but we have to, we have to know our boundaries, so that, and that means we have to know ourselves, so that we can calmly speak up for our boundaries. Often when boundaries are violated, it comes out as anger and aggression and blaming, But if that's there, if that fire's there, then a boundary's been crossed. So pull back, what boundary's been crossed? What need hasn't been met? How can I respectfully ask for what I need? And and that's a request. That's not a demand. We can't do that. All that leans into nonviolent communications. It's very effective. And so if we can can navigate um, with our partner with really good communications, respectful communications, then we can navigate the challenges and the changes and showing up holy as ourselves and allowing them to be holy themselves and not trying to change them, right? It's the trying to
0: change them. Mm -hmm. That always gets us in trouble, doesn't it? The trying to change the other. Oh my goodness. And I'm just struck by the our conversation about this happening in our 40s and 50s. Because that's also something, you know, Kate and I interview a lot of women talking about this topic. And we've interviewed women from 17 to 72s thus far. And we have seen in some younger women, this wild, almost like they haven't lost it. They're, they're, they're courageous and they're just like going for things, but that in general, it does seem more that the, this wild woman archetype tracks us. And then finally comes into full bloom in the midlife because something hard has happened like the diagnosis or the divorce, or, you know, this is when things start to shift and so I really appreciate your addition and would love to hear more about why is it just that it's not even possible before 40? Like Young yeah, says real life starts at 35 or I don't think so. Um
2: I don't I don't think so. Yeah, I totally agree that when we're younger, there's a really big developmental phase that psychologically that happens around like 16 um in men and women and and we can catch glimpses of that from like 16 to I'm going to say early 20s seems to be shifted out by mid 20s and you know people can be really clear and um it's almost like they're speaking out of the diamond like it can be really visible what the calling is going to be you know and you can you can look back at that time and i would say maybe even more so than the younger years and you know, like I knew who I was and what I was going to do and what I was going to be. And there's glimmers there that were actually very, very true, uh, much more true and literal than I would have expected. And that, that seems really consistent for a lot of people. So that, that stage, when we're kind of launching, let's call it, I think we have a pretty, like, I think the veil is just very thin about who.
1: That is fascinating. It is. This episode is being sponsored by Revival. Revival, a women-owned and operated clothing store located in downtown Iowa City, offers a curated selection of modern, resale, and vintage clothing and gifts. Revival focuses on brands that empower women and promote ethical and sustainable practices. Making sure your wardrobe and your style look great while doing our planet and community good. Celebrating 20 years this fall, find them on the Ped Mall in downtown Iowa City or shop 24/7 online at revivaliowacity.com use promo code tendher23 for 15% off your purchase i think about the you know those are like the years you're entering college or you're you're moving yeah. past and you get this independence yeah it feels like there suddenly space is created for you right or yeah. maybe the parental controls yeah. are lessened the influence And if you can tap into your inner knowing, which I look back, I did not. I still was like, "Who wants to tell me?" She became a lawyer. I became a lawyer, (laughs) (laughs) and um, because that was the marker of success, right? You know, that was what I was told. Lawyer, doctor, saying or a doctor, yeah, which wasn't going to happen. So I was. That was the path I took. But I do think there's such a good lesson in that we may have exactly what we need at 20 like you said the 8 16 to 24 to know that if we go inside and we're connected to our instincts and we trust those yeah. versus con- continually kind of looking externally and, domest- and yes. domesticated so wow. um
0: so i i think it's a huge yeah. gift you just gave us and i want to point that out dr stacy because i actually had never known that or thought about that. Either. And I'm thinking about an earlier part of our conversation about often our parents can't reflect things back to us because they don't know themselves enough yet to even do that. So I'm yeah. thinking about my children in that age range and being really consistent about reflecting to them who I see. Um, yeah. Because mm-hmm. if there's that period of time where, like you said, their true self is really the veil is thin, it does eventually that veil drops and we get domesticated. We get caught up in profit and jobs and all of that. Like I want to really give my children that reflection if possible. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. What feels like a really big gift.
2: Yeah. It's, it's important to the degree that we can to try to see our children, you know,
0: to the degree we can. That's a good point.
2: And the other thing that just popped in my head when you were saying that is um, we're we in North America and like all of the westernized countries, we live in democracies and democracies rely on capitalism. Capitalism relies on scarcity, because if we don't have a sense of scarcity, we're not buying. And if we're not buying, the economy collapses and then the political system doesn't work. So I'm not saying I'm opposed to democracy. I'm a big fan because we have certain freedoms within that. But that is a really complex problem, right? We have to um, try and be aware that 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 is a that is just a model. That's a system. There's a lot of other political systems, social systems, or different ways of organizing countries and structures that don't rely on scarcity as a model. And so, you know, our our, and the reason I'm saying that is because our um, inclination is to like have our kids get through high school so that they can get on to university, and then they can get a job, and they can create safety and security and stability, and they can be contributing members. But what are we asking them to do? Like to work 40 hours a week and have two weeks off a year? Like. Yep. That's the norm, you know, and that, that is not very soulful, soulful. And so I've got this 18 year old right now. Who's like, why would we do that? Why wouldn't we live somewhere a lot cheaper and have a happier life? Like this, this model doesn't
1: make sense to me. I think young, our younger generation is seeing up on that. Yeah. It feels shorter to them too. Yeah, uh, my 21 year old son told us a few years ago, he said, I think I might retire in my twenties and I'll start working in my thirties. Like, he's like, I want to live. Like, I want to do the traveling. I want to do all the things that everyone tells me I have to wait till I'm 65 to do when I I won't have the energy.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's that wise period of time that you were just talking
1: about. Yeah, he really knows that. He did. He really did. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah, there is a lot of wisdom in that for sure.
0: Powerful. Okay, I want to... You're looking at me yeah, and you're we're shaking so our heads. I really want to go into sexuality because you write about this in your book as well. And you talk about um, and we have not actually talked about sex much on this podcast. We keep saying we gotta, we gotta bring this topic in more. And that's also a fascinating, uh, symbolic mm-hmm. piece about like the fear of talking about sexuality because you said female sexuality is such a powerful force. Yeah. And our culture doesn't know what to do with it. And so we repress it. And I often feel like mm-hmm. that you and I were like, how do we even tap into this conversation? And so we just find other things to talk yeah. about.
1: Yeah. I'd I would love to just yeah.
0: can we pick your brain and yeah. start a I, conversation about this? I think
2: it is a challenging one. It's um It's embarrassing and it's awkward and it's taboo. And one of the things we're taught is to be virginal and pure, and you know, to sex is for the pleasure of men. And you know, these are all very, very ingrained messages in our psyche. And even though we logically know that that's not the case, and in fact, we, you know, the high school kids these days they know that logically for sure. It doesn't mean that we're still not embedded in that model so claiming our sexuality i think it is just an awkward difficult confusing thing you know like if we go out wearing sexy little dresses and heels because we want to feel sexy and have that aphrodite energy going um it's very easy to you know then i don't uh, the, the word shame comes up like women will be judging or jealous and men will be objectifying. And, you know, you can't just be in that sexual power and energy very easily without a lot of external mirroring coming back. That's quite negative. Right. So um, the goddess Aphrodite, like mythically speaking, addressing this problem, the goddess Aphrodite is the goddess of love, sexuality, and beauty. And that's true for both men and women, but I think female sexuality is uh, much more powerful and potent. And that goddess is considered so powerful, like even in the myth of Eros and Psyche, we don't really look upon her directly. It's almost like we have to be indirect with her because her power is oceanic. She's born of the ocean foam. It's this powerful energy that we have the ability to connect to. We make life, we make life out of sexual energy. Like it's mind blowing when you think of that, right? Right. The power power of that, that we all essentially have. Yeah. Yeah. So that force and that power, you know, I, I don't think we know how to wield it. I don't think we've had really great examples. We had, you know, Marilyn Monroe was a really great example of a very Aphrodite woman but she was such a tortured soul and there was so much torture. shame and objectification. Like she couldn't hold that. The mortal could hold that, you know? So that, I think that's true for um, for women that are claiming and maybe even naturally strong with that Aphrodite energy,
0: right? Having an aha moment here right now that maybe we can sort of like circle around. Cause you said Aphrodite represents sexuality beauty. And what was the third thing you said?
2: Love. So her uh, son, Eros, the God of love, love that the arrow and like makes the connection.
0: And so because sexuality in our culture has been so repressed, it's like the, the, for women, so much focus is on beauty and maintaining beauty and high beauty standards. And what we have to do to all the work we have to put into staying beautiful. Like, is that partially because the sexuality, if it's this triad of sexuality, love and beauty has been so repressed and shut down that then we focus more on trying to uphold
1: beauty. The yeah. yeah. external.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there, honestly, I'm a fan of beauty, like human beauty, men and women being beautiful and tending to grooming. I, I love all that natural beauty, flowers. I love all of it. A big fan. Um, but because sexuality is so repressed, I think you're right. It does get sublimated into these other uh, culturally acceptable areas. In fact, even encouraged because the beauty standards, like the, I mean, the beauty industry is a multi-billion-dollar industry, right? But I also think the other side is porn. Porn is just, and again, I'm not. Um, the porn industry has a very, very dark side. But porn in and of itself, when it's not harmful and abusive, can be a tool in the toolbox. It doesn't have to be this
0: um big, black or white. Right,
2: right. Not a black and white thing. So I'm not saying no to porn, but there is a very, very dark shadow with porn. And so that has become rampant and it's disconnected people, mostly men, because men use mostly use porn um, from the you know, the heart and the sexuality and the mind, the mind is a very major sexual organ. It's disconnected all of that. So these things have gone into shadow. Whereas if we could um, allow female sexuality be, to be safe and powerful.
0: Uh, I mean, I just, what would our world look like if everyone uh, was really oh empowered our own sexuality and Living that, because um, it also makes me wonder if we, because it's repressed, we sublimate that repressed sexual energy towards beauty and also towards love. That whole Disney, I'm going to find my prince charm prince charming, my soulmate, my love, and right, like how does that take us away again from our power?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Disney stories, uh, they're a bit of a segue, but yeah, they actually track more.
0: <laughs> And know where I'm sitting
2: talk more that inner life of the union of the um king and queen. Like fairy tales are actually really great stories for what needs to happen internally. The problem is we take them literally. And it's the same problem with porn is we somehow conflate the fantasy and imaginal, which has a rightful place with the, oh, it's supposed to be like this, literal, right? So anytime we're conflating and mixing up, what belongs to the soul, to the imaginal, with the uh, literal, then we're on a very slippery slope.
1: Well, and women, you know, I know we've talked a lot about women being so separated from our own bodies and being yeah. not embodied. And so as is that the window into taking control of your sexuality? Is Is that the work women can do? is become more embodied, connected to your body. And that that key to that power really is through that process, because I know I've had to really work on that later in life.
2: Yeah. And not only like, so yes, connecting to the body, like initially just doing really simple somatic sensation. Okay. What am I feeling in my body? Mindfulness can be helpful with that with the body scanning and tracking. What am I feeling where is my breath? And just like very safely coming down into the body. I don't think I know any women that haven't had some sort of sexual trauma of varying degrees. And the statistics are very high for reported pretty high level trauma, right? So, so we want to start safely. We want to start with, okay, let's just track the sensations, you know, and that that's an ongoing practice. And then we want to start, okay, is there, an emotion or a thought or a feeling or can we just be with that and let that sensation be there and expand and then as we work our way down you know tracking the instincts what is hunger what is thirst what is tired all of these instincts in the body and attuning to those and then responding to those so that the psyche soma connection builds rapport and trust we can trust ourselves right when we can trust ourselves, it doesn't really matter what happens too much out there. I mean it matters. It, it's not like we don't suffer heartbreak and loss, but we are resourced in something greater. And then the sexuality when we're when we're feeling connected to ourselves and to our bodies, exploring our own pleasure, what do we like? What don't we like? What does our body look like looking in the mirror? looking explicitly in the mirror, looking at our, you know, genitals and private areas, private areas, and really getting to know ourselves and our bodies. And that process, um, that's a hard one, especially with trauma, you know, getting to be comfortable with our own pleasure, right?
0: want to go back. You just said something that I feel like sums up so beautifully, this whole conversation. And it's when women can begin to trust themselves. Like when we can move into a trusting relationship with ourselves, then it's almost like you just said, it doesn't matter what's going on around us. It made me think about like, it doesn't matter what storms are brewing around you. Like if you trust yourself, I mean, in some ways this feels to me like the wild woman, we are so deeply connected to trusting our instinct and ourself, then it doesn't matter what's happening in life. Ah, yeah, so powerful. Mm
2: -hmm. We often look for trust outside, you know, in partners. And they're going to betray us and we're going to betray them. That's just part of it. But when we can trust ourselves to handle those betrayals and griefs and losses and heartbreaks and, you know, take care of ourselves again, this is back to the boundaries, which sounds so simple, but it's not because it means we really have to know ourselves, right? The really knowing ourselves is the work.
1: Yeah, I wish the message to young, especially young women, but really, all young people, you know, the most important relationship you'll ever have. In your life is with yourself, and we yeah. often—that's not the message that they get. It's find the right person and that your will be, life will be complete. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. the whole Maguire—you know, you complete me. Yeah. Uh, we complete ourselves, and so—and um, I do think it is the midlife when you really start to have that reckoning with what is the relationship with myself, and you one. Yeah. But yeah. that I wish that message were younger, so that people throughout their life. Yeah. Maybe they aren't ready. They for may not.
0: It. Like maybe that's the whole yeah. point of this conversation. There's something at that midlife that yeah. turns us into a deeper, real, more real relationship to self.
2: It, it is the, so the, the first major psychological development is um, approaching adulthood. The second is the midlife and they're equally big and important. Um, but what changes so in the in those years in between what happens is the ego structure the uh, like if we imagine the ego is a vase that contains the conscious identity the consciousness everything we are aware of that that I'm going to call the ego that vase has to develop through those two decades let's say and it has to be pretty strong and what that means is it has to be able to hold the identity. If it can't hold it, it breaks and the person becomes very fragile and, um, you know, influenced too easily by other things and not true to themselves, right? External things. But in midlife, the pivot is we go from being aware of this egocentric universe where we're developing that, which needs to happen. It has to be strong. To being, um, in Jungian terms, it would be to be in service to the self with a capital S. So the ego consciousness becomes in service to that which is greater, which Jung Jung called it the self. Um, Hillman was polytheistic, so he would call it the gods and goddesses or the archetypes of the unconscious. I tend to just like consciousness with unconscious, you know, So consciousness becomes in service to the unconscious and how can we show up today and be in service? How can we, how can we be the joy in the world? How can we be kind in the world? You know, ego shows up in that way rather than what can I take from the world?
1: Mm -hmm. I was going to say, you talk about surrender, which we've talked about a lot. What does that mean? And, as women and both of us, you know, self-proclaimed people pleasers and perfectionists and probably um, err on the side of wanting to control a lot of our life, you know, that, that feeling of deep seated, you know, the need for control. And, and can you talk about surrender in relation to the wild woman archetype and how surrender there's so much power and surrender and how those you know, are connected?
2: Yeah, the. The need for control is very simply about creating safety and security. And it's actually tied to the um, you know, the white picket fence dream that girls are taught is grow up, find a good husband, he better have a good job, and then you can build the white picket fence, have your two and a half kids and a dog, and you'll be good, maybe throw in a cat. It's <laughs> it, it's very much based on safety and security, right? Like that we are taught will give us safety and security. And that will make us feel whole and complete. Safety and security don't have anything to do with wholeness and completeness, and neither does having a partner, having a family. Sure, that might be rewarding in its human way, but not, not as a um, indicator of safety, security, or wholeness. So when we get there and we make that, and we're disillusioned because nothing really. Is whole or complete. And in fact, we don't have safety or security because now we might be dealing with a divorce or a job loss or illness or whatever it is. Um, then we have to go into this place of getting to know greater. And that's the crisis. And greater would be um, the invitation and maybe necessary, in, like we may not have a choice to surrender. And so the surrender is what we're surrendering is the ego consciousness that is absolutely designed to keep us safe and secure. It's all about protecting us. Very helpful. We do not want to get rid of the ego. The ego is there to keep us safe and secure. So we need to go in increments of how can we surrender control, which means we're surrendering what we believe makes us safe and secure to go into the unknown, which is the opposite of safe and secure. The unknown is so scary. It's like stepping into the void and the darkness and it requires a leap of faith It requires trust. And so when we can do that in like little increments to build that relationship with greater consciousness, building relationship with unconsciousness through lots of little micro experiments. Okay. When I, let go into the flow of this day and things didn't happen the way I wanted. It actually turned out for the better. Okay, good. Let's pay attention to that. That will be a micro growth of surrender. And then there'll be bigger ones. We go through the very hard crisis and so maybe five years later, not even 10, it would be less than 10. We look back and we go, oh yeah, that was that was really hard, but damn, was it worth it? Like, really worth it? You know, gosh, and it might only be a couple months. Like, you know, these changes, um, especially as we get older and we've gone through a couple of big crises and transformations and transitions, and they, when we can surrender more easily. Uh, they get easier. They they just get easier. And there's always an end to them. When we're in it, we feel like, oh my God, this must just be normal life. It is not. It it does end. You know, when you're in finite. the, yeah, they're finite. When we're in the death part of the cycle, we feel like we're going to stay there forever. And we absolutely do not. It moves through and new life is born and the new life in the myth is named pleasure. Like it does move.
0: Oh, a way to look at that. Mm. We always end, I, I want to keep talking to you I for know, like just five more hours. <laughs> <laughs> this is like my language. I love this topic so much. And I'm so grateful that you have studied it in such depth, but we do end with a question by the infamous Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who wrote Women Who Run With the Wolves. Yeah. So
1: Kate. yeah. So we'd like to ask, um, she talks about the four doors into the life of the wild woman. And we'd like to know what door for you personally, and maybe it's more than one door, that you think you have taken into your life, a period of life as a wild woman. So if you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much you can almost not bear it, that is a door. And if you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So is there one of those doors that really speaks to you? Uh,
2: All of them, but (laughs) all of them, and and they, they have different strength through the ages, um, different times in life, but the initial introduction to the wild woman, I read that book when it first came out and I was probably 18, you know, like in that time where the veil was thin and gosh, I thought I understood that book. Like there was parts that really resonated, but at 18, looking back, I'm like, how could I have understood that book? It's crazy. But at the time, um, probably it was deep scar. There was uh, still recovering from, not even recovering, still getting away from the childhood wounds. Yeah, so that deep scar would have been the first door. But now it's, you know, that full moon and beauty and sunsets. And Live. I get, yeah I'm just like oh so
1: good we often when we ask that tears come up for people yeah and and I think that emotion lives in those those doors it lives in those spaces where we find like you said pleasure and joy um and I feel like the wild woman archetype is just you know emblematic of like living fully and in connection with self. And so, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Our uh, gift. Thank you you
0: so much, Dr. Stacy for sharing so much wisdom. And would you please let um, our listeners know about your two books and where they can find them. And then also um, anything more that you would like to share about how people can follow your work.
2: Great. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity for that. So I'll hold both books up. Another gratuitous
0: moment. Get all of our little stickies in it.
2: (laughs) I I did a book launch last year. So I was reading a lot from this one. I lost my book launch book for the Tracking the Wild Woman. It was also all stickied up. So Tracking the Wild Woman was my doctoral research. um, And then Love and Soul Making followed from it. So they actually lead on from each other. Uh, they're both published by Chiron Publications, and they're both available on Amazon or through my website. My Can I say my website? Yes, please. My website is drstacyshelby.com, and that's D-R-S-T-A-C-E-Y-S-H-E-L-B-Y.com. Um, and you can follow me on uh, Facebook and Instagram, uh, also at Dr. Shelby. So that's the easiest way to find
0: me. Get it all in our show notes. So people have an easy click to
1: what you're doing. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for today. I I feel like this really helped us dive deeper into this archetype in a way that um, personally I have found so uh, expansive and you've given us new things to think about and. I
0: feel like there was a portal that opened today. Like you took us even deeper into it, um, which I'm curious to know how that's gonna continue to grow. So thank you. Yeah,
2: interesting. It's interesting for me too. Like I said, these kind of way leads on to way. And this was my first one. I started writing for that back in 2013. So it's been a long time. And now I'm really interested in writing alchemy, which is getting more complex. And I wanted to get clearer not more complex, but anyway, we're at where we're at. And so it'll be interesting where that portal
0: evolves for me
2: too.
0: I can't wait to keep following your yes, words. Me either. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation.
1: Hello, listeners. We want to let you know that we have so much gratitude that you join us in these conversations every week. We want to continue to uplift and connect with women-owned businesses and businesses that are supporting women. So if you are one of those or have a recommendation for someone that may want to sponsor an episode, please have them reach out at tendherwild.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Kate Moreland Coaching and Heartland Yoga. As a coach, I am an advocate for authenticity and well-being for individuals, organizations, and communities. Through my coaching work, I like to help you connect to your authenticity. Whether you're an individual, a leader, or an organization, your creative power lies in your authenticity. Doing the work to understand your strengths and acknowledge the patterns and rocks that are in your way is the path to well-being. Whether it's your career or your relationship with yourself or others, transformative change begins within. You can reach me at katemorlandcoaching.com.
0: Heartland Yoga has been in business for nearly 15 years. I founded this studio with the intention for it to be a safe place where people could come and heal. I also knew that I wanted a business that fostered community and connection. So if you are looking to deepen your yoga practice, heal from physical, emotional, mental wounds, or simply connect with people who are like-minded, Heartland Yoga is a place that we would love to welcome you into, whether it's online or in person. You can find out more information at
1: www.heartlandyoga.com. And now the amazing singer-songwriter Lissy Morris with Wild West. Thanks for joining us today. If
0: you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week.